Hey there, folks. It's Matt. Welcome to Food Under Fire, where we explore grace and resilience in the food system. This episode marks the beginning of what I've been calling season two of the podcast. With the new year upon us, I felt like this distinction was necessary. It's going to be a very interesting year, but I assure you that it's going to be a good one if we approach it correctly. This year will be highly characteristic of two values that may seem to oppose each other at first. As I said in a previous segment, 2021 will be the year of action, but it will also be the year of patience. In the context of this podcast, I say action because we need to be supporting restaurants now more than ever. We can't sit back and pretend that our foodie friends who get takeout several times a week will be the saving grace of the food and drink industry. It's a collective effort. Each of us needs to show up for restaurants. But of course, not only restaurants, but just local businesses in general. So that's what I mean when I say action. But what about patience? Well, this vaccine is not an overnight solution. Yet many of us want it to be just that. The unfortunate reality is that 2021 will still have many of the same pangs of isolation, especially in the beginning. We just have to wait. So, listener, make me a promise. Use this year as an opportunity to cultivate patience and take action. Before we get into today's episode, be sure to follow the podcast on the official Instagram page, which you can now find at Food Under Fire Pod. You can find it on Facebook as well under the same name. Keep in mind that I recently launched a Patreon for the podcast. Patreon is a service where, for as little as $3 a month, you can get access to bonus content and merch. It's optional, but if you're interested, visit patreon.com slash foodunderfire. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash food under fire. Find the link in the description as well. And of course, if you enjoy the show, consider subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You could also share with a friend or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even though he won't admit it himself, Alex Roberts is probably one of the most important figures in the history of Minnesota dining. On November 4th, 1999, Alex opened Alma in Minneapolis, a new American restaurant that reshaped the palates and expectations of eaters across the state. At that time, Alma was serving food that was rarely seen in the Midwest. Liver pate, salt cod, chorizo with clams, lamb shanks. It seemed crazy to do at the time, but Alex pushed ahead, and he succeeded. Diners loved it. Alma became an adventurous refuge for eaters in the region and set the standard for the future of fine dining in Minnesota. In 2007, Alex opened Brasa Rotisserie in Minneapolis a restaurant specializing in Caribbean and South American comfort food. Think slow-cooked pork shoulder with a side of sweet plantains. It immediately received accolades upon opening, and he opened another one in St. Paul. 
In 2010, Alex won the James Beard Award for Best Chef Midwest. And in 2016, he added a cafe and a hotel onto Restaurant Alma. So it's no question that the guy has been busy in the last 20 years. But nothing could have prepared him for 2020. Alma shut down its dining room back in the fall and has been takeout only thus far. The restaurant has faced significant financial losses and Alex has had to let go of a lot of employees. Such is the story of many restaurateurs this year. But Alex in particular, I really admire. I really wanted to talk to him. Because listening to other podcasts he's been on and reading some of his published interviews, I felt a strange kinship with him. But my connection with Alex goes beyond that. Because before I met him, I met his dad. Hello? Hi, Joni. It's Matt. Is Don there? Hey, Matt. Yeah, hold on just a moment. Okay. Matt, who? I first met Don Roberts in 2016 as I was first getting active in the Buddhist community of northwestern Wisconsin. Hello? Don, it's Matt. For whatever reason, we connected. We really got along. Me being a man in his 20s and him being a man in his late 80s, we kind of complemented each other's energies. I was moved by his wisdom, and he was fascinated by my youth. I wanted to know his perspectives on life, and he just wanted me to keep him up to date on the state of technology. We began talking regularly over the years. I would even stop by for dinner sometimes. I soon discovered that he was the father of Alex Roberts, who I had heard much about. When I first started my Jazz 88 radio show, based on the Twin Cities food scene, I often pestered Don to tell his son about me, but it never really worked out. When Alex and I connected and agreed to chat, I was ecstatic. I had wanted to speak with the guy for years, and after our conversation, I called Don to inform him that I finally had a formal interview with Alex. Uh, parenthetically, I want to make sure that uh, we uh, respond to your thing with Alexander. Uh, we haven't seen it yet on the internet. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You guessed right. You guessed why why I'm calling you. Yeah, I wanted to let you know that I, I finally spoke to him, and it's going to be airing next month, probably the second. Of course, after I told him this, Don and I got pretty off topic, as we usually do, but we circled back, and he was glad to hear about the conversation nonetheless. He is a, he's a guy who takes it on. It's just amazing. Uh, and uh, thank you for talking to him and uh, I appreciate your tenacity Uh, now let me shut up and listen to you for a minute (laughs) so let's rewind a few weeks before this phone call I drove to Alma from St. Paul on a cold dry afternoon alright so I'm in the northeast neighborhood of Minneapolis on my way to Alma And I'm having another one of those moments where I'm reminded of the old world. Because this was, this neighborhood was the first area where I really got acquainted with Minneapolis. I had a friend that lived here. And uh, he lived on the block I'm on right now. So I'm just having another one of those flashback moments as I walk over to this restaurant. I continued to walk, sitting with my thoughts visiting memories of a past life. A few minutes later, I reached Alma. 
Alex greeted me at the door. Alex, how's it going? Good, you? Good to meet you. Good. Good to meet you. Yeah. It was my first time in the building. A beautiful hybrid of three different spaces. Restaurant, cafe, hotel. He showed me the restaurant side first. This side of the, of the building, this, this is Restaurant Alma. And this is the, the side that we've been doing. It's 21 years old. Yeah. Um, and we've been specializing. right? That's right. Yeah. Soon after, we moved into the adjacent cafe. I met some of the staff, and then we headed towards the hotel section, with him showing me some of the rooms. French Armenian, so it really has this mm. kind of, people, people kept saying the, the rooms are Nordic, and it's like, they're not Nordic. I mean, I can understand what people say with the raw wood, but it really has this a little earthier vibe that it's a little more... After the tour, we talked a while longer about this and that. Eventually, we headed upstairs, and he ushered me into one of the larger rooms for us to have the interview. I set up my camera, tested the audio, and we began. The first topic of conversation? Beans. I really think that beans are one of the most important foods in the world. I think more people should be, everybody should be eating more beans is kind of my general outlook on, on, on food. And uh, I eat beans, you know, multiple times a week, every week, uh, almost, sometimes almost every day. Um, and uh, should we talk about cooking beans? Let's do it. That's right that's on. exactly how I wanted to start this. In fact, that's the only reason why I'm here with you today, yeah. just to talk beans. <laughs> well, so, so okay, so beans are a really interesting food. Um, they are not prized by every culture, but they have, they have a place in really every, well, certainly every continent and usually every country, right? So... And some people dismiss them as like, oh, they're animal food or something like that. They're not fit for right, people, right. and it's because you get gas and all that stuff. And and the truth is, is that beans, like a lot of whole grains, you have to prepare them with thought and care to neutralize the, well, the, the anti-nutrients or the things that are in them that make it hard for humans to consume them. And so one of those things in beans are... Uh, indigestible starches, right? And and that's part of that's what's associated with people and gas and all that, right? But what you do, and that's why most people are this whole debate has been going on, well, soaking beans, do you have to soak beans or not? You don't have to soak beans to make them edible, but you certainly <laughs> should soak beans to make them the best they can be. Ah, and that's okay. how you neutralize those starches. But you also in, in the process of soaking a certain way, you are able to help beans cook more consistently because when they're dried, they could be dried for three months, they could be dried for three years, you have a different product that you're cooking over that time. And so what I've learned is that taking dried beans, rinse them off, if they're super, super clean, you, you don't necessarily have to in this stage, but you know, pick through them, they generally don't have any rocks in them, but sometimes they do, sometimes they make it through the sorting process, depends on where they're from. Um, and then you cover them in water and bring them up to a boil. I like to simmer them just for a short amount of time. Uh, this is these are for like larger beans, like black beans, pinto beans, pink beans, uh, kidney beans, those kind of beans, right? Not like lentils or or mung beans or something that's going to cook really fast, and not black eyed peas because they cook really fast. Um, those beans you would just bring up to a boil and turn off right away. But for larger beans, you bring up to a boil, let them simmer for 20 minutes to a half hour or so, and then turn it off, and then cover it and let them sit overnight. If you really want to go up another level and you have it, you could add something that alkalizes the water slightly, like a piece of kombu seaweed, and that's going to alkalize the water and help that process even more. Um, and then you pour, and then the next day, or maybe uh, you could even do it in, you know, in the morning and then do it for, at night if you're cooking them, um, you'd pour all that water off and rinse them. 
and then and then cook them now in fresh water. And when you pour that water off, you've poured off those starches that are now started to break down that are not very digestible to most people. And you pour that off with the water and now you, what you've left behind is really the core of what beans are made of and their nutrients. And, and now you add your flavor and everything else like that. So, and we get into the next stages there about so frito <laughs> method and, 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 and the ways that, you know, the cultures that are most known for yeah. making great beans, well, what do they do? You know, I'm happy to talk about it. I could go on for an hour or two probably. Right, the bean podcast. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that soaking process, that's the why behind the soak. And that's what we do at Brasa in enormous batches of beans, right? We're cooking, you know, 60, 70 pounds of dried beans in a batch at Brasa at a time. And, we, and that's how we, that's how we treat a, how I treat a one cup batch at home or how I create a, a 60 pound batch at Brasa, the same method we use there. Yeah. Well, so. I wanted to hear you talk about that because cooking beans has been one of my main hobbies during the pandemic. And I feel like I drive myself crazy reading conflicting things on the internet over different ways to make them because there are so many different guidelines and how to prep and cook beans. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate that. I'm definitely going to be listening to that segment over and over again and taking notes. Well, and I'll add one thing is that I, I, I agree with people that you don't have to do that method because it's still perfectly edible to do it the other way. But the, what I look for was the patterns in traditional cooking. So if you look to the cultures that have been preparing beans, right? The new world beans and the old world beans, right? The chickpeas are more of an old world, right? And uh, black beans, let's say, is more of a so-called new world bean, right? But different, the different hemispheres. And, uh, you know, now, now those beans have moved back and forth across the oceans, but there was a time where they really were separated by um, the water and, and the cooking traditions. And But what's, what's interesting is that most of those cultures um, had the habit of either hulling and hulling the beans in advance, like split split peas and split lentils, and so you got rid of the part that's not as digestible, or they soaked them, or added an alkalizer, um, and before they cooked them. So that was the old method that existed probably before the, there was any science behind it. And so why did those the, the ancients, if you will, why did those old cultures? Why did they do that? They knew something. They knew something was better, and so I'm I'm going with their their methods. So yeah. that's good enough for me. Yeah, right. I, I would trust them if anyone. Yeah. But yeah, before this actually turns into the bean podcast, I want to, uh, I want this, this was the place where I wanted to start. And we were talking about this earlier. We talked about it quite a bit. But uh, the through line, the, the odd through line that we have in our lives, uh, which is your father, you know, for some reason, him and I really became friends about four years ago through Buddhist circles in, in Wisconsin. And he, he became a mentor of mine over time. And I sometimes visit him and check in on how he's doing. And he's 80, 89, correct? Uh, yeah. And the guy is always calling me, asking me about new tech and how to understand this and that. I mean, last week he called me out of nowhere and he goes, Matthew, <laughs> there's tell me more about live streaming in China. And I'm going, Don, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't know. I don't know much about live streaming in China, <laughs> but at, at his age, 89, I find it so incredible that he is still trying to stay on top of things and he's trying to keep with the times. And, and he, he seems just to have this relentless growth mindset. And I'm wondering, a, do you notice that? I'm sure you do, but do you think that's where you got, your mindset from the way you approach your work? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I never like kind of broken it down that way. But um, my dad is a person that certainly has reinvented himself a lot of times. I mean, he, he started farming 
uh, at the age of 68. Wow. That was the same year I opened this place. So, I mean, if you can start doing a, a small organic vegetable farm at 68, I mean, really, I mean, you should, we should all be re really reminding ourselves that we can reinvent ourselves at any time or we can pursue something new at any time. And so uh, for my dad to be going through that as I was opening my first restaurant, very challenging things, both of them. And we ended up working together because he was supplying us with vegetables and some, and a number of my colleagues and friends, uh, restaurants with vegetables. It really created a wonderful opportunity for us to get closer you know, at a certain time, you know, of our lives. And, and so he, um, I think he has been a huge influence of mine that way. And I, it certainly, um, made me always just focus on what's possible and not really putting fear first, just putting possibility first, you know, and, and, and having an, an absolutely uh, optimistic viewpoint on just change and progress and uh, experimentation, you name it, you know. Yeah. yeah. And this idea of reinvention, I, I feel is very, is very current. I feel like we've all experienced that a little bit this year in our own ways. No joke. I mean, just the lives that we were living before this, uh, we've had to shift ourselves entirely. Loaded question. I don't know how else to ask it, but like, tell me about your story of reinvention throughout 2020 thus far. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm no stranger to it. I'm, you're no stranger to it. I mean, I think just being alive right now, uh, there's, there's some amount of it for almost everybody. Uh, um, I happen to be in the restaurant and hospitality space, which is an industry that's getting re really, you know, in a tough spot and, mm -hmm. and we've been forced to change and, and pivot. And as they say, as a word, another one of those words you get tired of, right? Cause it's used, the new buzzword right now. Use it too much. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 um, you know, you're, you're confronted to, to having to change when you don't want to, and you are confronted with that. And of course there's a natural party that just resists it because you don't want to, you want to keep doing what you were doing because you loved it and because it was working because that was your plan, right? That was, that was what it was. And all of a sudden you can't. And so there's a, there's a moment where you're resisting or there's a moment where you don't want to believe it. But if you're, if you're listening, right, to kind of the world around you and to the people around you or just the kind of that energy, you realize how quickly that be, it becomes a very bad plan of action to resist or to just kind of wish it was different, right? And so you're forced to automatically either get stuck there and have all that goes with it or start to think about, well, I can just accept that this is different. I can stay away from my own emotions about it. And I can just accept that this is just, is what it is right here. And then look at how I can meet that um, to my best ability or to and more importantly, our best ability when we're working together, like restaurants are such, you know, cooperative efforts, um, that how do we do it together? And so you're quickly now in this creative space, which I think is the best antidote for something that's as horrible as COVID or a pandemic is, is a creative answer, not a, oh, yeah. a fear-based reactionary answer, right? So you move away from this kind of reaction or my own emotional reaction, let's say, and we start to work on what of our creative responses. And so that's probably maybe the next, I'll maybe break there, but like that's probably the next part is well, what, what have we done in a creative sense to then, you know, move forward from there. But we, I try to get to that creative space pretty quickly. Um, 
just because I've learned what happens when you do it the other way. This is pre pre pandemic. I, I learned what happens when you get stuck and you're and you're in that fear space or you're in that I'm not willing to change space that things can get worse pretty quickly. So I've uh, learned through my experience to just embrace what is and and the creativity that should follow that. So what is that creativity? So you're saying the reinvention has to occur and then the then the creativity has to then there's space for the creativity to come in or maybe the other way around like the reinvention can't really occur if you're if you're stuck in the fear oh, okay. of like well if we do this then this might go bad or this might happen or 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 just like why well, I might fail or or people aren't going to like it or, or or whatever all the things that you can just make you stay you know in the same spot but when you when you just say well no let me let me in, embrace a creative solution to this and take an inventory of what our resources are, what our collective skills are as a group. You know, we're, I'm not the best at anything. I'm a, I'm a pretty good generalist. We walked through today a cafe, a restaurant, a hotel. Um, and, you know, I'm basically a guy who, I'm basically a cook who became a chef who ultimately became a business owner. And I don't have a business degree. And I, um, I, I have a cooking degree. And so, I've learned along the way, so I'm no master of, of anything, and, and uh, I'm, but I, I take everything very seriously, and I, I learn along the way, and so I simply um, try to assess what my skills are, try to assess in cooperation with my team what, what, are, what individual skills are, and say, hey, I think we got a good idea, we got a good chance of pulling this off uh, with what are, with what we're good at, right? This is simple as that, and it isn't about being the best at anything. It's just about doing something that contributes and brings some beauty to the world and brings some hospitality and some care, and and then we you know we kind of check those boxes and we say let's go for it, you know, and it's something as simple as that, um, oftentimes. Um, but I guess it's not simple at all, really, when you when you when you break it down in individual pieces of it. But. Yeah. Well, your life has kind of been this like masterclass in resilience, operating a restaurant for 20 years, just one. We're not even talking about Brasso, just Alma being around since 1999. I I feel like that idea of withstanding the pressures of operating an establishment like this. I, I mean, do you think that prepped you for the experience of this pandemic? Obviously, it's an unprecedented event, but just mm -hmm. the general concept of you have been through so much with this place. Well, I mean, I thank you. First of all, I think you're being generous and like that assessment that time kind of equals mastery in some ways. And sometimes time just equals like you've just survived this far and, and maybe you're, you know, your last day is tomorrow or something. You well, know, do, it, doesn't time equal mastery or in uh, your mind, do you, do you find a, a disparity there? I mean, it's a great concept to explore. I, I, I don't think it automatically does. Um, but I do think that generally in competitive environments, if you've been around for a while, you either have yeah the advantage of some mastery or or, or skill, high level skill, uh, or you have some advantage like uh, I don't know uh, a big inheritance or something. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I don't have that. I, I I I didn't start this in this business with any money. I w I had a chance to uh, uh, partner with somebody and 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 borrow and 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 that kind of thing and and pay back debt and take on more and. And so over the last 21 years, I've been awfully close to, um, you know, not filing bankruptcy, but kind of at that intersection where I'm like, the next step might be really having to think about what happens if I have to go, you know, 
file for bankruptcy and, and close this. And that, that happened early on with the opening of Restaurant Alma within the first couple of years mm. um, with a dot-com bust. Uh, it, it happened um, with the opening of Brasa 2 in St. Paul where people were clamoring for something different. But when we didn't have French fries and fountain soda and, and familiar food, you know, uh, it, it, it opened up with great fanfare and then dropped like a stone because oh. people went back to their the burgers and the fries and, and, and more familiar things. And it, it took it took communities actually coming from other neighborhoods to, to, to Grand Avenue to help us survive. And people found us and we found our people. And and that was remarkable. But in the time in that time frame, we, we almost went bust. And then um, when I reopened Alma uh, years later, just four years ago, as we talked about going from a restaurant open in 99 to becoming this whole building, um, put really, really every every bit of resources I had into it, took on some new investors um, and really, you know, got to a point where we were really, um, you know, we're not making money, losing money, and, and will, will this be sustainable, or will we have to really go a different direction with it and 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 close what you know is now Alma or something like that, and and so facing those those major you know moments of like really questioning whether you can go on, um, I think that obviously I, we 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 cross those thresholds and none of those things happen, right? I never went bankrupt, never closed the restaurant, found a way through found a way to make it successful and to, and to get back to a healthy financial place. Um, and I think you're right that those experiences definitely prepared uh, myself and others on, on my teams to um, who, have, who have been with me. Like, like, uh, like I mentioned, a couple of people have been with me for 20 years and, and another handful around a decade or a little more and, and so on and so forth and, and, and others. And so uh, I think those experiences have prepared all of us for, for this pandemic somewhat. So. Mm-hmm. Do you think there is always a way through? I think you should always have that mindset. Whether there is, there isn't. I, I don't know if that matters. I, but I, I think there's. That's the mindset you should have. And if you have that mindset, there will almost always be a way through. But until there isn't. But at that point, so you know, so what? You've given it everything you had, and you know, I mean, none of this is life and death for me. You know, I know that that's that's what. That's another thing that I've, you know, every day during this time, um, reminding myself that it is this, these moments are life and death for some people, right? Closing a business, it, while tragic, disappointing, um, and again, I'm very fortunate that I'm not right now facing a closure, but many are, and that's, that's horrible. But it, at the same time, it isn't life and death. Um, I have a, I have um, kind of, we're at this point in the pandemic so many months later where I think we're getting, we're seeing that most people pretty quickly are like kind of one degree of separation out from a person that has been very ill or even, you know, has died. And now that's my family. My, I have an employee that really, really struggled to recover and really thought they were going to die and, and recovered. And then I have a um, kind of a, uh, family member, well, kind of formally through marriage, but a, a parent of a, a family member who um, is passed from COVID. And and so, you know, when it's one degree out, you realize, okay, this is life and death for people. And that also puts it in perspective that what I'm facing is just not that at this time. And to be really just absolutely aware of that and, and, and really just understand how, how good we have it despite the struggle. What What is your... 
how has your relationship as a, as a leader changed here? Or even something as simple as uh, your relationship with your employees. And I, and I purposely kind of pair those two questions mm -hmm. together. How, how, how has that shifted during this time? Leadership is a great like thing to explore right now. And uh, I, I generally believe that like you don't, you don't call yourself a leader, like people name you a leader, right? That's something that right. is, you yeah. can be described as. So I, I work hard in my life to embody the qualities that um, I think are worthy of that. And, and then people will decide whether I am or I'm not. I, I, you're not going to sit here and you know, hear me call myself a leader or talk about you know, that. But I do um, admire uh, other leaders. I admire leadership traits, and I try to cultivate those traits within myself and with my team. Um, and again, you know, people, other people can decide how the varying degrees of my success there, you know, I hope that, you know, and people that you've talked to, like, like John, for example, have, you know, have given you some, if you've ever, you know, heard of me or, 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 or heard about my operation or my team, you have some sense of, of the values and, and, and the way that we do things here. And perhaps the way that I do things as an individual, but that has to be earned over time through, through action and effort and consistency and, and commitment to, um, those values and even virtues, I would say. So, um, it's what I strive for. Um, my, uh, the, it, this is a time that's required more, I think more toughness. You know, I, I think that, um, I've had to look back on my life and the times that I have really, um, struggled personally, whether it be being like an uh, apprentice chef and cook in New York city or opening a restaurant for the first time. And, you know, having to sleep on the benches of the restaurant so I get up and get the bread out in the morning to rise because there was no one to do it. And I knew if I went home, I wouldn't, you know, get back here in time. And so these kind of, you know, almost 24 hour and 48 hour periods in the restaurant and, and you know, these kinds that you just really struggled. And I think that kind of toughness, uh, mental toughness and sometimes physical toughness has been something that um, is, is required, right? Like, this is a labor intensive business. And when you, when you are quote unquote, you know, pivoting again, or you're doing it with fewer people, that means there's more work to do. And so you can get more efficient, but you also just have to work harder and longer sometimes. And, and, um, it, it you know, that's just is what it is. And so I just kind of remind myself and I've tried to remind others that like fatigue in it by itself in, inherently is not tragic. It's just fatigue. You know, we've all been through like the, hardest week of our lives and we get like a day off and sleep and a good meal and you're like you're reborn right yeah. you, you can recover from that right yeah. so what are our narratives and what are our stories about our hard work and what are what are we doing i'm trying to as a as an individual and as a as um you know a person where i am in this organization um i guess there's what you call like in that leadership you know role let's say or a management role you know just trying to create some context for what this struggle is for us and to get away from you know the negatives and just focus on the positives like our strength in it right like the fatigue and the tired is, isn't negative by itself it, it, it's just it just is and we can if we're good to each other and we really are making an effort to acknowledge people's effort and, and let's say fatigue and we and we kind of have each other's back then we can go through something that we might say is one of the harder moments of our careers and then but say boy it was it was actually a really good time we really came together we really got did a beautiful job we really did um great work and it and and then you know kind of 
look back on with pride or something like that, right? So. Yeah, the, the the perspective in retrospect really yep. helps. Yep. That's that's certainly true. But man, it is, it's very easy and tempting and natural to just ascribe a negative label to the fatigue. You know, we just, the discomfort, we just, we, we dislike it so much, but perhaps looking back, it will, it will make much more sense. Yeah. I mean, do we, do we look at our, we experience our lives and I don't know about you, but I know that when I look back at the most memorable and sometimes what I consider the best times in my life, <clears throat> they're often attached to some form of struggle. You know, I don't recall a random day that I woke up late and called a friend and we went, you know, to watch a movie or, you know, it, it, those kind of blend together as a, as a multitude of days often in our memories. But I can really tell you that time that I slept on the bench in the restaurant, well, actually it was a number of times, but anyway, <laughs> but I can think about those days so clearly and, and how meaningful they were and how being able to do that and persevere and everything like I can look back and say, I think it was because I did those things that almost survived and that people believed in me and people were willing to follow my lead and stick with me. And then now we are here 21 years later. Like it's not one leap, but it certainly was like an initial thing that um, made the next thing, next opportunity or the next day possible, something like that. And that's a good memory. That feels like, well, those were the best times type of thing, right? We were talking about narratives earlier, and I think that's so important because it creates a very compelling story of our life. If it was just roses and rainbows and, and, and just easy passes left and right, man, what a boring story that is. That's not why we're attracted to stories in art and media and film. Usually all the best stories are just filled with strife. And that's, that's I mean, that's the main part of the plot is that the, the hero is struggling with some sort of existential crisis or they can't do this and they can't do that. And that's why I've always been so fascinated by novels and movies and stuff because they certainly paint a picture for what the human condition or what the human experience really is like, especially mm-hmm. a human, the human experience when it is well-lived is full, full of suffering. Mm-hmm. It is full of suffering. And, you know, the... You, you know, I think maybe we all have our own way of like exploring this or, or naming it, right? But like this idea of like work-life balance. When I was, that was a very popular thing in like the early 2000s. It seemed like that was kind of like buzzwords or something back then. Work-life balance, work-life balance. Like, well, what is that? What does that mean, right? And I remember I was like, you know, um, well, in the mid-2000s, you know, I, I got engaged and I got married and, and, and Margo and I, who you met earlier, we, we had been dating since uh, just after this place opened in 2000 and got married uh, five years later. But, you know, she's a nurse. I was a chef. We had these crazy hours. I mean, boy, we just kind of constantly, there's got to be a better way. We've got to have, be able to have a better lifestyle, but, you know, working six days a week and you know, only seeing each other late at night. And, and so it's like, okay, work-life balance. You know, how am I going to achieve that? And you know, all I did was struggle and, and be, it was filled with like emotion and disappointment all the time as I was trying to achieve this so-called work-life balance. Because what it was, it was kind of like a balance setup, right? Or a scale. You know, if I, if I was, I had to have less work to have more life. I had to have less life to have more work. And that was just a setup all the time for uh, really uh, this, being at odds with each other. And I don't know if some person wiser and more experienced than me that this said something about there not really being such a thing as work-life balance. There's just balance. And it, you know, it was so like, it's so simple and so maybe so obvious. So I'm not trying to be profound here, but for me it was profound because I stopped struggling with it. 
and I later came up with the explanation of like the like the fam like the family farm. I mean, that's like a seven day a week thing. You know what? What's a day off there? You know, like you know, type of thing. It's like people you're you're, you're constantly in a in a flow, in a cycle with it. And to be honest, being an entrepreneur, but also being a chef and a restaurateur, it's a seven day a week thing. You know, I try to protect one day a week with my family, but it kind of flows in and out. And I don't have the same exact hours every day and things like that. But once I threw out the side where there's going to be work days and there's going to be off days, and it's going to flow. I mean, I, I do have try to have like one off day. Uh, generally, right? But but when I stopped fighting it and just said, you know, you just got to go in for an hour, do that one thing, and you're gonna bring your kid, or you're gonna, or, or you're gonna bring your wife, and you know, or, or you're gonna walk the dog, or whatever the hell it was. When I just stopped fighting it, and I just said, can I have balance within this and be more flexible? It just everything changed for me. And it, I don't think you've got to be a restaurateur to do that either. I think we no, all have our not. own struggle with this idea of work-life balance. But if it's just, do I have balance? however that work comes into our lives. I mean, you sound like you're very passionate about what you do and you might even be going through and editing something in your spare time. And is it even life? Is it work? It's just one thing. It's just your life, right? And so that was the breakthrough for me and probably why I'm still doing this and loving this work 21 years later and even not every day enjoying the pandemic, of course, but enjoying the work that I'm doing during it still. Yeah, the removal of those two terms is... uh... Very interesting to me. I never thought about it that way, but for some reason it makes a lot of sense that I can't, I personally can't really put my finger on because that state of equilibrium and finding that and what you do is so crucial because uh, if you don't have that, you're, you're going to quit, especially if you're doing something that's very, if it's personally aspirational and it's something that takes a lot of courage. And that's another thing we can talk about is courage. But if it's something that takes a lot of courage and, and personal willpower to do, with that, that out that sense of equilibrium, you're just going to quit because you just everything is out of whack. Right, and you'll you'll never be in a state of equilibrium if if while you're at work you're thinking I should be at home right now. I shouldn't be working the sixth day this week, or I shouldn't be putting up the stock tonight because no one could come in, or the security alarm went off. If you're in that moment, and you're saying I should be somewhere else, or you're at home and you're feeling guilty. I shouldn't be here right now. I should be at work helping my team, and you're guilty. You're not in the moment. Then. What good are you to yourself or even to your family or whoever, your friendships, and you know, your friends who, you know, like you're in this, you're not in the, in the moment. You're not, you're, you're just gonna make yourself miserable, right? So I mean, it, again, this is all incredibly obvious, but do we, you know, for me, it took, it decided being maybe obvious, the practice of it wasn't obvious, right? The being in the, just accepting it. And then when I'm, you know, here for my, you know, if I've been working seven days a week for months, like I, I'm not any like I have nothing in my mind that's like I've just, I've been deciding to work every day since this pandemic started. There's not been a day that I haven't done some work, but I don't feel like that's been some horrible thing. It just seems like the right pace. I'm maybe jogging a little slower by working seven days because that's the way I'm finding the balance right now. If I tried to work five and and then be off two, I don't think it would create the balance for me, and and I would not be doing so well. So. You know, it's probably a very personal thing, but anyway, I'm probably going on too long about this, but it, it's been a profoundly uh, important thing for me to have well-being uh, in this time and it's just in general in this industry. Right. Well, just even the concept of, of presence is so crucial. And I think that it's something that, uh, especially in American culture, we, we don't get that often because we've, you know, it's, for decades we've been conditioned for nine to five 
five days of work per week type thing. And then you're always, it's always like this sense of like looking forward to like all looking forward to the weekend. And then once you're in the weekend, it eventually gets to a point where it's like Sunday afternoon and then you're dreading the week. And it's just, it's never, it's never an acceptance or a, or a state of full presence in where you are right now. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like when you are doing work that is completely, you know, fulfilling for you and it's very aspirational, I feel like you are able to get into that state of presence much easier. Not that you can't do it, you know, you can do it, you can get into that state of presence regardless of what you're doing, but it's just, mm. it's when you are working on a project like this and, and there's so much, there's like this sense of duty involved there's a, there's like nothing to look forward to. There's nothing to dread. There's just, this is what I'm doing right now. Uh, and again, what I'm doing right now is what needs to be done right now. Cause that's the way that balance can be achieved at this, at this point. Yeah. And that, I mean, and for me, that's been everything from spending more time with my children, uh, and cooking and doing laundry because my wife has been working on her apothecary project here which is a different, you know, little, little different flow for me. Maybe, uh, it's been doing things as useful as making, you know, 600 pounds of mashed potatoes at Barossa for the Thanksgiving packages or, or washing dishes here at Alma because we're short staffed and we're, you know, running with a small crew, you know, it, it doesn't, it's all, you know, or, or working with the CPA on the what ifs around PPP loan taxation, yeah. you know, and, and, and the brutal possible outcome if the IRS and the legislators don't agree on that. You know, it's like, those are all four very different things to be doing with your time. But to me, they all are just equally as, um, I don't know, I mean, necessary, but at some level just enjoyable because, well, enjoyable is probably a stretch for the some of that financial stuff. But there's something in it that's important and just worth doing and worth being, like having good energy in it, you know, like whether it be the learning out of it, whether it be the the contribution that you're making to help people through their workday by washing dishes. I mean, or just the one guy that doesn't care about to make mashed potatoes. Like everyone's like, I'll pass on that. I don't want to do that. I'm like, I'll do it. You know, like yeah. doing what somebody else doesn't want to do, taking that burden from somebody, carrying that weight on your shoulders for somebody else. Like there's a lot in that that you feel and get enjoyment from when, when you can carry that. Cause you're like, I got it. That's no problem. You know? So I'd say that all four of those examples are just like things that have happened in the last months and you know, and I'm not the only one, like other people, you know, in my, in my teams and stuff are doing the same kind of thing and they seem very much at peace with it too. So that energy has been really, really positive. Right. So you speak on this idea of, uh, you know, I'll do the mashed potatoes if you don't want to, this idea of doing something when someone else can't show up for whatever reason, not that they're lazy or they're unable to, like they just, for some reason can't show up in that moment and then you're there for them. So that tied with this idea that I just referenced uh, of courage, do you find yourself being that for your team you know i we're we've got this guys we're going to get through this or are you a little bit more realistic with them are, are you, do you have much more serious conversations are you or do you try to be this kind of like you know the symbol of, of courage so that you can show them a, a good example like how how is it that you approach kind of your attitude hmm. with them yeah well that's a good one um courage is an interesting concept right because it I think for some people, the connotation is this kind of like, I have no fear. I'm, you know, we're facing the challenge, right? And I, I think courage is actually, in my opinion, something different than like not having fear. I think courage is like the willingness to face the fear or something like that, right? It's, it's not, um, 
that you don't have it. I mean, maybe it includes people that don't have it, but I think, and fear is an interesting word too. It just means like maybe intrepidation or, or, or a lack of confidence sometimes, or, you know, um, the uncertainty of risk, right? All those things can kind of fall in this fear spectrum, worry, you know? So I think I, I certainly try to not demonstrate. I, I don't communicate worry as a practice, right? I think that if I'm communicating what I'm worried about, and I occasionally have a worry, but, uh, or occasionally experience anxiety with something, let's say, but I do not believe that I'm doing my job in terms of where I am in this organization if I am communicating my worry to people. I'm not saying I can't. I mean, if I need to con- con- confide in somebody or something, I, I will. I'm not trying to do it from like, like, I'm, like I don't have feelings. I'm just saying like I think the most important thing I can do is help people see the way forward. Like I said, that choice between creativity and fear. What's the way forward with our creativity? What's the way forward with our collaboration? What's the way forward with our strengths? What's the way forward with understanding what our weaknesses are and then kind of, you know, operating with respect to them, right? You know, if, if we're not great writers in our group, we're not going to start a blog, right? I mean, that, does, that wouldn't make sense. Like, why, why go, why would you pivot towards your weakness? Why wouldn't you? But we're good at, you know, we're good at cooking and we're good at pairing wine and we're good at, we're, we have strong relationships with, our, with 20 years of guests and so they're going to accept what we're going to do. So if we can tell a short story about what we're going to do and then meet them with hospitality and consistency, well, there's our strength, right? So what's that going to be? It's not so much story, long format storytelling or uh, that. It's going to be more towards what our strengths are. So that's not maybe a very uh, precise example, but it's like this idea of helping people see the possibilities. And so that's my job, I, I, I think. And and so I think in that way, that's that's maybe at time embodies a courageous outlook because it does take a lot of self-control to just focus on the way forward and not get dragged down into like what you what's making you afraid or what's giving you anxiety and like kind of like wallowing in it because there's lots of company for that right misery loves company whatever they say if you start on that thing you're going to find a lot of people in that conversation with you and what does it do for an organization in my experience in life it doesn't do a lot for an organization as much as it's our nature as human beings to, to go in that space for a while because it feels good for a minute just to get it out. This sucks and this isn't going to work and what if this and yeah, and then this could happen and we're all going to be out of work. You know, it, I mean, we, we're good at it. It's, it's actually in our DNA as, as human beings to do that too. But I don't think it's always our best selves and I don't think it embodies maybe our courageous selves right. as, as human as it can be. So I think that I've been just trying to maintain that that other side of it um consistently and at times just tell people with you know i guess they they, that's another kind of buzzword is vulnerability uh but just say you know when i'm unsure it's like hey we're going to give this our best shot we're going to try to hit this target financially we're going to try to do these things to get there right we're going to reopen our dining room at a lower level and we're going to staff it this way and we're going to we're going to do this other project over here etc etc and we're going to try to aim for this goal. But I'm, I, I don't know if we're going to hit it. And if we don't hit it, I think there's going to have to be this fallback position, you know? And so there's some vulnerability. That, and, and, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep employing as many people when that happens. And those were conversations we were having, you know, way before the shutdown, right? We closed our dine-in in November. And I had made that call, you know, 
seven weeks before that because the writing was on the wall. And I saw fear increasing amongst our staff and guest interactions. I saw the weakness of bad weather and what it would mean for us. And I, I just said that there's, there's no way that we're going to be able to stay, op- stay open uh, in the cold weather. And so I thought the, the most, I guess, courageous thing and, and the most open and honest and transparent thing I could do would be to give people the longest notice possible. And I knew, I mean, that took some courage because I knew that some people would like quit the next day because they had to go find another job. Or if they had another job, they would go find it or they, you know, and it it would create a lot of work for the people that were still there. And it did. It was very hard. And it's hard to be working when you know the place is going to be shutting down, the dine-in and stuff like that. But I knew it was the right thing to do. And sometimes just doing the right thing, you know, it takes some courage to do that because you know it's going to be harder on you. It's going to be harder on the other people around you but it's the right thing to do. And so in this case, I think that was, um, I, you know, of course people now are like, yeah, you, you saw it coming. What was your, you know, what was the magic there? I'm just like, I, it just seemed obvious to us that that would happen, you know, a month before or so, uh, well, seven weeks or so before the, no, I'm sorry. I'm not, no, my, t- my timelines are off, but well, months before Everyone's the governor Everyone's timelines shutdown, are off right now. <laughs> it, months before the governor, you know, this last shutdown, right? But right. It, um, it just seemed like it was coming, you know, and so... But yeah, really, um, I think that th- th- that took some courage, for certainly, to do to make that call really hard because we went from um, I mean, we've had two rounds of layoffs, and it's been really one of the hardest things I've had to do in my life is to lay off people that have been with me for a long time and and, and to, you know no fault of their own um, are losing their jobs and not being able to provide any support for them uh, beyond some initial you know small things that we did. Um, just having such limited financial means has been a really really hard thing. In in moments like that, and I'm sure you've had many moments like this throughout your career of just, just ex, where, where courage is just needed more than ever because the situation is so hard. It's just so difficult for you, especially when it's as sensitive as, you know, letting go of an employee. And I know how much your team means to you. But I mean, in moments like that, where do you, from anywhere, do where do you draw the strength from to do those things and, and to just face it? I think when... I mean, I, I, I determined that the best thing I could do would be make decisions that would allow Alma to survive and give us a chance to reopen, right? So I, I set a course that used math and maybe some gut, some instinct, you know, based on my experience to say, if we do these things, I think we can get to the other side. And, and I think the big, for me, the, the big thing was like, I had this strange data in my mind for a long time i think it was because the industry talk was like oh if we can just if we can just get to you know april or something like that it was kind of like the winter is gonna be bad but if we can get to april everything will be fine and there's you know the vaccine and all that stuff but that that i'll call i'm getting pushed off and so then i started paying attention to other organizations and they were talking about you know like big organizations that do analytics and modeling like you know google or whatever they're talking about oh their campuses will be empty until next july or august and that hit me like a ton of bricks like if these people that really do the math are talking about that timeline i need to change my timeline from april to and i I started to use june because that's when really open outdoor dining really starts here and where i think we're going to have a chance for some liftoff in terms of volume um and so when i started doing the math on june i was like whoa that is i've got it i have to make some drastic decisions and so i think and that's just because like i don't i've got a lot of debt i owe people a lot of money I can negotiate that to some extent, but I still owe people money 
and I still have to pay the bills and I still have to pay the insurance. Like I don't, I don't have, I don't, and I don't have like everything I have, I'm a small business person that didn't come from money. Everything I have is in these businesses. There's, there's no other bank account that's, you know, has money in it aside from a small retirement account that I have. And so it's in here. And so when I, when you look at a finite amount of resources, then you'd have this, like, I'm, I'm just going to be totally honest and open and transparent with people about where we are. And we practice open books. So we don't put all our financials on a wall, but if anybody asks any question about finances, we, we will give people that information. You know, I, I don't tell somebody what, well, I'll tell somebody what my salary is, but I, I won't tell anybody what anybody else's salary is, but you can know what any category of salary is, right? What, what does a sous chef make? What does a, a server make on average? What does the manager make on average, right? That kind of thing. What, how much money did we make last quarter, right? How much money it cost to build this place out? All that stuff is open book here. And so, um, but it takes, it's a two-way street. People have to engage you. I don't just put it on a wall and let people pick away at the numbers. Yeah. And so as I, as we approach these things, we just shared more and more information about that with people. And hopefully that would get down to tell, you know, help people understand where we were. And I think that openness and that honesty, you know, takes some courage, to just put it all out there. And, um, and then this idea for me that like, that's the kindest thing to do is just to say, here's what we have, here are the resources we have. And our goal and all openness is to, is as much as we, um, are just, you know, hate to, to do layoffs, we think doing this right now will give Alma the greatest chance to, to reopen and to, and to re-employ as many people as possible. And just putting that out there with, with in, in the process in which we came to that decision, which we did through Zoom calls and emails and, 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 and one-on-ones and things like that. And anybody who had a question, we, we sit down and talk to about openly. That, that, I think, was what really kind of made it feel like okay or well not okay isn't even the right word but just made it feel like we had handled it in a way that was i guess open and kind i think to the extent we could right which is all you can do in that situation it's in that particular context the greatest most powerful truth was was doing what you did and uh you know, it's hard to apply any sort of right or wrong to that. It's just for the best of this place and the best of this place means the longevity of this place and therefore the ability for this place to help more people down the line. Yeah. Because it's not good for anyone if you don't make those decisions and then Alma closes and now everyone's gone. I think that's true. It's true for me. Uh, I But there could be a person that says... I was planning on going somewhere else in three months. And so three months of pay would mean everything to me because I'm moving or I'm, I have another plan for my life. And this is incredibly disruptive to me and it's changing my plans. And that's really hard on me. And I can let that in like that. I can see that would be absolutely true for somebody. And so like the goals of Alma, you know, I'm not saying this person wants Alma to close because they want their three months of pay. They're, they're two separate, you know, lines of thinking uh but they in a way they kind of collide they could collide at a certain point so i don't hold anybody like i wouldn't be upset at anybody who just didn't agree with me and say i think you're making the wrong decision because for for them they need they would they would want something else to happen and some people you know were upset and, and and i i totally like i don't i mean i could i could sit across and somebody and no one yelled at me like but i you know i got a couple of notes and things like that where people were complaining or or or, or challenging the transparency or, or, or the motivations. And, and so I just, I just take it head on and say, like, I'm happy to sit down with you and answer any questions you have and, you know, and, and just tell you, you know, what, what my truth is. And 
hear yours, you know. And what your truth is is the best you can do. I mean, what else is there beyond that? I, yeah, I think as as long as that includes like like some objective, <laughs> coming through these political times we've been in, some really objective standard of what the truth is, right? I mean, we have our own, right, our own experiences in life, but like what I'm sharing with you, it's like, again, that transparency piece, right? That's as long as I think that's there, then then it all, it, it can work, I believe. And that's what we, uh, what I aspire to always do is just create that full transparency about what we're doing and what the situation is, what the financials are, all that. One more, one more note on the courage thing, because as you were talking, I was thinking of this, we, you call courage facing fear but in my mind i like to sometimes look at it as courage is almost uh surrendering to fear Mm -hmm. it's almost like giving yourself up to fear in that moment to feel it so fully that you realize that on the other side that you're fine (laughs) because our our you know our primate brains thinks that thinks that on the other side of fear there's something horrible waiting for us Mm -hmm. that there's something there to hurt us or kill us or just debilitate us and uh it's when you really submit into that state of surrendering that you realize, uh, oh, I'm, I'm fine. And things mm-hmm. are, they're better now. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I've grown now that I've faced this. Yeah. And then, and it's just, and that's what life is. It's a constant, it's just that cycle over and over and over and over again. It's, the, there's, it, it, that's what life is if you want your life to be uh, one uh, lived on your own terms and aspirational, of course, because you know, there's that thing you fear and some people just, they turn away from that forever and they never face it. Mm. But there's that thing you fear, you conquer it, you realize, oh, I'm fine. But then there's always a new one lurking around the corner. And then you got to work up the courage to get that one. You overcome that one. And then there's, because there's just always, yeah. always another one. Well, I love the term surrender. And it's actually a, you know, I don't have like a formal meditation practice, but I, I, I try to put time aside every day to kind of reflect and breathe. And I have kind of my own way of, of, um, of, of meditating, I, I guess. And, and a surrender is, is actually a concept and a word that I've spent a, a lot of time with and, and um, both in this time and, and even before, just because I think this profession, right, uh, food and, 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 and restaurant, you know, the, the, the show must go on all the time, right? Every day you have a, a full cycle of production. And so if one of those pieces goes out of whack, you know, one delivery is gone and you need that thing to be there for service tonight, you're probably going to will call it. And so somebody's going to disrupt their day and you're going to go. And so that, that you know, you're, you are constantly, um, be, you know, you can, you can be, you know, blown every direction. Uh, in, and it's not just myself, but, you know, people in this profession um, can really be blown every direction because the show has to go on. It's not like, you know, if we're making, uh, I don't know, you and I were building boats and we had to fulfill an order for some new boats in a year. And one day I was sick and, and we had to do the ch- job together because it took two people. We could both take the day off or let's say or do something else. Uh, and it really wouldn't sink that project where if let's say two of us were out in a single night in a restaurant, it may have a major impact on that service and the quality of the hospitality, the quality of food, let's say, uh, or just the flow and, and quality of life of that night for both guests and, and staff. And so it's a really trying business. And so because life happens, right? And orders don't show up and people are sick and, 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 and things don't go according to plan, right? Things break down. You name, I mean, there's too, too numerous to count, right? If you don't surrender to that, if you don't like understand that you can't, if you fight that all the time and you're angry at it or you're, or you're, or you're, you have this idea in your head that it's, it's supposed to be something different, 
right? It should be something different. Like I always think that word should is like a, like a code word for judgment. Using the word should, it's, yeah. it's like a code word for I'm, I'm, I'm making a judgment that this should be, you know, it, that it's, it's supposed to be different than it is. And it's like, no, it, it just is how it is right now. The air conditioning just broke in the hotel and I'm back up on a ladder on the roof of this building again on Sunday when I was supposed to go on a picnic. It's like, if I don't surrender to that while I'm climbing up that ladder, I'm probably going to fall and kill myself. <laughs> so just let it, you know, let it in and, and, and go up and see what the problem is. And, you know, just work through it. Like surrender is a really powerful thing because it, I think it brings you back to your center so often. But I think we tend to associate surrender, certainly in, in maybe the modern Western world, as kind of like waving the white flag as we were beaten by the other side. And I actually don't see it that way. I right. think of like, I think of the person that waved the white flag to save their people from being uh, slaughtered. Because if you would have kept fighting, you would everybody would have gotten killed. And you wave that white flag and it's a tremendously powerful concept because you wave the white flag hoping that the lives are spared because you could put down your guns, wave that white flag, and everybody could still get killed. But you have a chance. This is a kind of a modern, like maybe kind of warfare context, but it's interesting because that's an incredibly courageous thing for that leader to do, to wave the white flag out of the hope that those lives are spared instead of either fighting to the death and, and perhaps being executed. But to me, it still embodies the same thing in, in oneself that when you surrender at the right time, you're creating like some opportunity for something better to happen. Because the fighting is only going to make something worse. It's going to lead to some negative outcome, something like that, you know. So thanks for bringing up the word yeah. because it's one, it's one of my favorites to, to really uh, to think on and, and reflect on. And it's been one that I've had to reflect on during this last this year as well, very much. Well, like you said, just here in the West, surrender has just such a, a negative connotation to it. But in Eastern culture, Eastern spirituality, surrender is the name of the game. That's mm. kind of like the foundation of, you know, how they achieve a state of uh, transcendence or spirituality. And I think we can learn so much from it. And uh, I think, you know, going back to the pandemic, I think surrender is an incredibly, albeit hard, incredibly important uh, thing to acquire right now or or thing to practice because there is something going on right now that is so unprecedented and so difficult and so badly our, our, our human brains just want it to end. And we're like, we're always thinking about okay, vaccine, it's going to be, it's going to be done here. Okay. We don't have that much to go. We're always thinking about when it's going to be done. We're it's just that resistance to what is going on right now and, and not finding ways to cope with it uh, and then ultimately surrender to what it really is and, and then finding ways to pivot in our own lives. And uh, yeah, it's, it's my hope that people can hopefully acquire that I idea of surrender right now because, you know, a lot of resistance going on right now with the pandemic is just, it's too hard to face for many people. And many people have kind of like reverted back into their shells and like how can you not i mean we're many of many of us are just quarantined right now how can yeah. you not revert back into something and you know that that very state of reversion that's i mean how can you not you know go into a state of resistance again it's just my hope that we can learn from this time and, and appreciate things so much more on the other side if, if surrendering means just kind of accepting what is, then maybe that moves, if you move your energy away from what you're, what you're fighting and what you're struggling with to then what you, can, what you can do, I think that leaves maybe, well, maybe leaves more room for 
um, cultivating more well-being. Um, because, you know, we know that sick fighting and fighting and fighting doesn't usually result in that, right? It usually just creates more fighting in some way, right? Whether it be internal or, or external, right, with other people. And so I think that, um, you know, if, if I take the energy that I, I would have been just resisting and, 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 you know, applying the shoulds of how it's supposed to be and I, I just get back into, you know, w what I can do, I really can grab more power um, to create more well-being in my own life and, and, and those around me. And so um, that is certainly something that I've really tried to, to focus on. And, and, and it's, it's, it's been limiting, I've realized. Like I um, have been realizing the limits of my resources and time and abilities um, in this period of time. And, and, and my charitable giving is, is gone down because I'm, I'm putting so much time into the, the, the basics, right? With, you know, I'm spending a lot more time with my children, their schooling. I, I, that's, you know, I don't have as much time to be donating my time or the same opportunities, let's say, because of COVID that I would have with uh, charity events and things that were a regular part of my life and, 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 and my way of doing things in the, in the businesses for the last 20 years. And so I feel a sense like of, of guilt about that. Um, but then, you know, a week comes by and someone asks me if I can contribute some food to, um, you know, uh, a couple of times, uh, like let's say one of the encampments uh, for a uh, homeless community here and, 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 and cook for, you know, someone brought a bunch of food by that just needed to be cooked. And so I was able to cook it and then help redistribute that food just as an individual. I, that day I wasn't involving any staff, just as an individual person being able to just cook and do that. And so little moments come along. But I've, I've been feeling that I've been like so in my, in my own little world, just trying to take care of, of my restaurant group and my family group. And I have older parents, as, as you know, um, and, and, and that's all I can do. Right. I mean, I, it's like that's the limits of my abilities. And so it's, it's been very um, humbling in that sense that I I um, I, I just realized the, the limits of my abilities and, and, and my bandwidth to to uh, contribute, I think, in some ways. And. So I, I, I've been finding myself really admiring uh, people all around kind of the landscape of, of the Twin Cities and, and beyond, but um, just making it their mission in life to give to others and to provide for people who are suffering even more in these times. Because, um, you know, right now I know that my number one thing is to be responsible to, to people that I are closest to me, my, meaning my family and, and, and my teams in the restaurants, but uh, people that maybe don't have those same um, you know, I don't know, immediate uh, priorities, you know, to see people out there um, every day, you know, feeding others and, and sacrificing to, to, to uh, on the, you know, to help people is, is really um, inspiring me too and helping me just realize that, hey, if they can, if people can do this, I can do whatever I have to do as well. Right. It certainly restores your faith in humanity, especially when we've seen heinous acts done by humanity this year, but then we see things like that and it's, it's just it's incredibly inspiring and it's incredibly heartening and um it speaks to the human spirit again speaks to resilience and i'm, I'm wondering where it's where it's all going to go to be honest i'm wondering where, where this is all going to go uh this episode i'm imagining it is not going to come out until technically next year so it'll probably be coming out in a few weeks and with that being said we can kind of cap off the conversation here where's your head at for 2021 what what kind of things do you want want to be telling your team? What kind of things are you going to be wanting to communicate to the community? I mean, what's your mindset in, in 2021 as we move forward? 
I'm lucky that I have a, a concept in Brasa right now that it, you know, we've we've had a number of shutdowns which are uh, really hard financially, and we we do not have um, a lot of resources around um, uh, with the FFCRA and, and the Coronavirus Act expiring on the 31st, and, and nothing new yet. Um, you know, I don't have a way that I can take care of people. Um, you know, to pay their if if they're if they're out of work due to a corona shut coronavirus shutdown, I don't have a way right yet that I can guarantee that I can keep everybody uh, paid. But Brasa is is a concept that um, is is able to pivot a little easier when we shut down. And let's say you know, seventy of our percent has to quarantine of our staff has to quarantine at a single location. We're not sharing staff across locations, so it just affects one store. And then we're able to pivot. We do our, our Brasa burrito concept that we have done in the soccer stadium in St. Paul. That, uh, the United Stadium, so we were pivoting to our burrito concept, and so that gives us some again some resiliency in that situation, and allows us to keep some people working who otherwise would be out of work if it was a total shutdown. Um, and so, continuing to find ways to develop more of a, to replenish our emergency fund that we can pay people who are out of work or need, have emergency needs, um, and um, continuing to find ways that we can kind of maintain. Um, um, some level of business so we can just keep going throughout the months is, is going to be a primary thing uh, as because I think the January, February, March are always the most challenging months in the restaurant business uh, for, for my restaurants and I think for, for the majority. Um, Alma, I, you know, it, I, don't, I don't know. It's been, uh, we've been kind of changing all along and I don't know if we, if we have a um, operational kind of plan or a format that's going to uh, be able to um, meet the challenges of, of the first quarter and beyond, you know, again, looking to, to, like I said, May or June of like something that even, remo- I wouldn't even call it normalcy, but maybe something that is um, results in a sustainable or kind of break-even economy because um, we don't, we're not at a break-even position yet here and, and we're just kind of um, controlling that, you know, the, the losses, if you will. So my goal is to continue to, um, really find a way to um, practice kindness by really finding a way to re- replenish our resources so we can keep our teams um, who are working like stable while they're while they're working and I and and if they get laid off or not laid off but like uh, temporarily um, out of work because of because of, of covid that we can like keep them on their feet with with their families and and with their you know rent and things like that. It, it's um, it's you know still still figuring out the way through there. Um, but um, I really think that um, despite that people are constantly you know look talking about you know competition and you know kind of aggressive mentalities as these kind of alpha alpha qualities in people. Uh, I think they are. I mean, they are these kind of alpha qualities. I think kindness and, and collaboration are, are are equally, but I would say greater alpha qualities when it comes to humanity. And I'm going to continue to just keep working on bringing those two things, you know, through dialogue, through uh, sacrifice, um, personal sacrifice, and hopefully building teams that are willing to sacrifice for each other. Uh, so kindness and, and, and this, you know, collaborative and, you know, cooperative approach to what we have to do, we can continue it because I think if we all have that mentality, our group will, will be able to persevere and and meet, you know, what, what's ahead and, and hopefully, you know, see the day that we can kind of stand fully back up again. We're all kind of crouched in this little ball that, 
you know, COVID has us in right now. And I'm hoping that we can, you know, stand everything up back up fully and, and, and find this, you know, our, our, our way forward to employ, you know, our full teams again and everybody. But um, I'm just going to continue to, to look at it that way. Uh, I'm not going to um, go to some mentality of, of scarcity and, and, and selfishness. Uh, just going to continue to uh, embrace this idea that it's a, a we a wee solution to the greatest extent I can. Um, and that's acknowledging, you know, that I've, I've laid people off and it probably didn't feel like much of a, a, a we for those people that I laid off, but a we that is the one that is ensures a future for um, the, the businesses and, and, um, and then and hopefully, you know, continues to a we that also, you know, can, lets me uh, support my children and, and, and be in my relationships with, with everybody uh, as much as possible uh, every day. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah. Uh, my final question is for people listening and they really want to support restaurants. How can they do that aside from ordering takeout? Cause that answer mm-hmm. is too easy. Well, I mean, if, if you have a restaurant that you love and you love that community of people, you know, you could just go have a candid conversation with the owner and say, Hey, have you had to reduce wages? And the person says, yes. Say, well, I, you know, I know that the IRS allows a one-time gift of up to $15,000. Could I, you know, could I, I've got some money, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's people, a lot of people have money. A lot of people have, have, have who, whose industries aren't affected by COVID are at home cooking all the time. They, they've saved 30% more money than they've saved in years. And so they have cash. You know, I think a person could call their favorite restaurant owner, GM or person and say, Hey, you know, could I write a, a check, a personal check to, you know, your management team or, 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 or your, your staff. I mean, it could be 50 bucks. It could be 10 bucks. It could be anything. But I mean, people are, you know, or it could even be people that were laid off that, that aren't on the payroll, but they have a name and they can, they can cash a check if the name is written to them. You know, there are ways that people could gift money. There are ways that, you know, restaurants are doing all kinds of different things. Stores, they're selling their wine inventory. They're selling, you know, we're going to be, we're doing retail stuff here. You can come and instead of buying your Christmas roast from the grocery store, the butcher, please go to your local butcher too. Like that's the, the, the restaurant community is beyond just restaurants. Of it's course, all of our suppliers right. and in small shops too. But if you were going to go to a big grocery store who are having a phenomenal year, almost every grocery business is having record, record business. Don't go buy the roast from the grocery store. Go buy it from your local restaurant. And if you, if you like the restaurant and they're not selling roast, call them up and say, Hey, would you sell me a roast? You know, and I'll, you mark it up what you need to mark it up. Like I want to pay you, you know, what, that what's fair to you. Like there are creative ways that you can, you can exchange and you can, you can help support a business, uh, I think. And yeah, you can always just buy gift cards and not use them. Buy a gift card and rip it up. I mean, you know, it's, it's, but then again, there's some, there's some tax consequences to that, but there's still a way that you're going to impact cash flow and help a business. So those are a few things that right off the top of the head are major. I know it takes a little courage to call somebody up and say that, but I don't think anybody's going to offend anybody. And you don't even got to do it for Christmas. You know, you know, it's like, think about this every year in this country, there is a mind boggling level of generosity in giving around the holidays. This country is actually gives a lot of money all year round. We have a very generous society, but around the holidays, it's extraordinary. So I'm sure that's happening right now as well. But you know what happens on, you know, January 23rd when it's 20 below zero? You know, how many people are giving a lot of money that week? Not, not that many, right? And so I think like these random acts of kindness, whether it be donating food to a food shelf, whether it be those things I just mentioned around ways to give, do that in those unusual times 
you know, March 7th, whatever, pick a date, right? Where there isn't a holiday, because I guarantee whether it be a food shelf or a restaurant team or, or someone who's on the, or, 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 a, or a, you know, frontline, you know, people in the medical field, those people, whether it be some, some act of kindness towards them at those times uh, are, is going to have a huge impact on their lives or their livelihoods. And so I, that's what I would say is like, look outside the traditional giving periods and, and it's going to have a tremendous impact on people's lives. Yeah, a little bit of ingenuity and initiative, and you can really find interesting ways to help beyond the traditional because, I mean, anything helps. And uh, to go above and beyond, you know, the typical, of course, order takeout, obviously, but to even go above and beyond that, I mean, gosh, restaurants would be so gracious, uh, butchers would be so gracious, whoever. So, yep. uh, yeah, I mean, that. We covered a lot, but that's a good place to end. I, I can't thank you enough for being here, Alex. I've been wanting to talk to you for almost two years. So this was a big deal for me. So I, I really appreciate this and I appreciate your candor and how open and honest you are about everything. And uh, I mean, I know you're a humble guy, but you, you're, I mean, you're a big deal here. And to, to have you say these things and to have people hear you say these things is, is a big deal. Thanks for the time. It's, it's an honor to be part of this community and to have, um, you know, obviously to to have a little bit of a platform to share some of my thoughts and ideas and and to share this place with you. But also, um, um, it's a really an honor to to um, have the support of this community too. Uh, I, I feel like um, a lot of people are rooting for us throughout this, and and you can feel that. And so I feel very fortunate that there's people that are, are are really rooting for us to make it through. And I'm trying to be that person for, you know, many others who are, who are, you know, much um, younger than us as, as businesses. So trying to get out there and, and, and give to, and, and support them as well, just, just the same way that you mentioned. So uh, thanks for having me here today. And uh, I hope to hope to be back sometime and talk to you again. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you, Alex. Thanks. I really, really enjoyed it, and it was one of the one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done, uh, either over radio or over podcast. You know, regardless of medium, it's one of the best conversations I've had with anyone. So, yeah, I'm, I was really happy to to have connected with him, and that's why I'm calling today. I just wanted to let you know. Thank you, thank you so much, and uh, it's a very kind of you to do it, and. Uh... I've been thinking about you and your your work, and uh, I want to be uh, as helpful as I can to you. And uh, I uh, I really appreciate your keeping in touch with me. Of course, Don. Uh, I, of course. I uh, I realize uh, more and more uh, with the, with the passing days of how how tenuous I am on this planet. And so it's a very, very good thing to be able to talk to people like yourself who are uh, just starting to change things, uh, hopefully for the better. And uh, I, uh, I really appreciate that. Hey there. Thanks for sticking around. I'll include all the links you need to support Alma in the description of this episode. Be sure to follow the podcast on the official Instagram page, which you can now find at Food Under Fire Pod. You can find it on Facebook as well under the same name. Keep in mind that I recently launched a Patreon for the podcast. 
Patreon is a service where, for as little as $3 a month, you can get access to bonus content and merch. It's optional, but if you're interested, visit patreon.com slash food under fire. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash food under fire. If you enjoy the show, consider subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You could also share with a friend or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews on Apple really help because it helps the podcast get more attention. In fact, I was recently informed that this podcast was put in the top 100 food podcasts on Apple. And that's because of you listening, and that's because of your reviews, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, listener, I appreciate you being here with me today. I'll see you next week. Take care.